Hello, Redemption Church. This is our last message on the book of Haggai. So I'm going to read Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, uh, and then pray for us, and then we'll move forward and talk through this passage for just a little while. But Haggai 2, 20 through 23, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Holy Father, this is um, a time for us to hear from your word. Uh, We want to hear from you in Haggai chapter 2. God, lead us into the reality that you are king, that Jesus is king, uh, and that means something incredible for our lives. Uh, God, we live uh, in a day and age right now which is uncertain, uh, where life is kind of crazy, and that we don't know what the next uh, couple of weeks or a couple of months looks like in our society and nation, uh, God, but we know that you are sovereign and in control and that you are king. Um, God, I pray that that would, reality would sink into our hearts and minds, that it would define who we are and our trust in you as we look forward uh, to what you're going to do. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On September 5th, 1997, the world received the news that that Mary Teresa Boyajou, better known as Mother Teresa, had died in what was then known as Calcutta, India. One day later, on September 6th, 1997, untold millions and millions and millions of people watched the funeral of Princess Diana as it was broadcast throughout the world. 32 million people alone in Great Britain. And I remember pondering at the time as to how and why the death of Mother Teresa was completely overshadowed by the death and funeral of Princess Diana. Both women were hugely influential in our world, well known the world over just by their first names alone. But on that day, our attention was on Princess Diana and her kids and the rest of the royal family. To this day, I'm still fascinated as to how much of Western society is enamored with royalty, especially here in the States, where our national identity is founded upon breaking away from the grip of royalty, from William and Kate's wedding a few years back, to The Crown on Netflix, to the recent fixation on Harry, Meghan Markle. Our current society still loves royalty. If we go further back than our current context, there are numerous legends and myths and stories about kings and queens and princes and princesses that that run throughout literature. Stories like Cinderella and the legends of King Arthur. The Lord of the Rings, which in a very real way defined storytelling in the 20th century, is a story that is largely defined by the promise of a great king from the north who would come again and set things right. 
And over the last couple of years, Game of Thrones has dominated pop culture, a story largely about who would occupy the Iron Throne. It's almost like there is a shared story across many cultures and societies where royalty as a whole and kings and kingdoms are uniquely adored. That's not really a a new story by any means. 1 Samuel 8, we see where God's people themselves wanted a king. After coming out of Egypt and entering the promised land, after the death of Joshua, Israel was largely overseen by a group of local and tribal judges that God put in place to help govern his people. God was intended to be their king, and these judges, both men and women, were appointed by God for specific purposes. But there came a point in time where God's people wanted things to change. And so in First Samuel 8, verse 5, We see where God's people came to Samuel and said this, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They wanted an earthly king, and God gave them one, even though in some ways it was a rejection of his kingship. Right First there was King Saul, and then King David, and then King Solomon, and after the nation split into two different kingdoms after that, multiple kings on down the line. But while David was still king at the time when David wanted to build a great temple, God made this promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a promise that God made to King David in Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Later, when God's people went into exile, when the kingdom of Judah ceased to exist, it looked like this promise would be broken, which brings us back around to Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. These words were spoken by Haggai on the same day as the passage we looked at uh, the last time we were able to meet together as a church when we looked at Haggai chapter 2 verses 10 through 19. It was a special day, a day where God's people were once again laying the foundation for part of the temple structure. It was a day of celebration. It was a day marked by the turning of God to bless his people from this day forward. And there was a cosmic shift happening because they had set their priorities right and they were being obedient. But even more importantly, there was a cosmic shift happening because God was bringing redemption. 
And in response to this, and as a result of God's promised blessing, God says in verse 21 that he is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 22, he speaks of how his kingdom and his king will uproot all other kingdoms. And then in verse 23, he identifies Zerubbabel as the new servant in the line of David from which the Messiah king would come and the person through whom the promise to David would be fulfilled. He calls Zerubbabel his servant. That's the same language that was unique to the description of King David. And and so in this passage, he's identifying Zerubbabel with King David. And God says that he's chosen him and that he's making him like a signet ring. And you know that a signet ring was used as a means of identification in ancient times. Instead of signing their names, kings or royalty or people would press their ring into hot wax or soft clay to make their mark on something to identify whose authority something is being said or done. You guys know what I'm talking about. You've seen this on movies and TV shows and Harry Potter and Game of Thrones. And I could go on and talk about other places where we've seen this, but but you've seen the seal pressed into the wax. We see this in other places in Scripture too, so that this is not an uncommon thing. When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, King Darius sealed the den that uh, Daniel was in with his signet. Daniel 6.17 says, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And so what is happening here is this. Haggai is giving a messianic word to Zerubbabel that God would greatly exalt him. But Haggai does not mean the person of Zerubbabel himself. The person in view is actually one of Zerubbabel's sons. Haggai is in a very real way drawing a straight line to Jesus from Zerubbabel. And we see Zerubbabel show up in both New Testament genealogies of Jesus And if you're familiar with the Andrew Peterson song, you know that both uh, Zerubbabel and Shealtiel show up in the genealogy song uh, that is a part of the uh, Behold the Lamb of God album. Uh, And so overall, God is going to shake the cosmos and overthrow kingdoms and mark Zerubbabel as his signet ring. And through the establishment of his kingdom that comes to fruition with Jesus, And make no mistake about it, that's exactly what Jesus aimed to do. In the book of Mark, we see Jesus establish his presence on earth with these words, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. The overall point of Haggai chapter 2 Uh, Verses 20 through 23 is a promise that God's kingdom will be established just as God always intended. And the fact that God is doing something new, the fact that the kingdom is breaking in, underlines three big ideas in this passage. And they are this. Number one, in God's kingdom, regular obedience has cosmic implications. Number two, in God's kingdom, all other nations and kingdoms will fall to Jesus. Number three, in God's kingdom, Jesus is king. And first, in God's kingdom, regular obedience has cosmic implications. 
Haggai 2, 21 through 22. Let me read it again. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. It's very similar to what God said earlier in Haggai chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7 where he says, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, God is saying, As you build this temple, as you go about the work I've given you to do, as you go about being obedient to what might seem like initially unimportant work, take courage, Work out your obedience. Don't be afraid because you're building more than you can see. All you see is a paltry temple that has previously been destroyed and it no longer matches the glory of Solomon's temple. All you see is a paltry temple before you that doesn't match the splendor of yesterday. But God sees his covenant people being obedient. And that's how God's kingdom breaks through into this world. Their work was not in vain because it was connected to something much bigger. And their choice to obey or not to obey mattered more than they could see. Because the obedience of God's people is part of how God's works in this world. It's part of how God's kingdom breaks into this world. And so God let them know that he was going to take their work and fill it with his glory and make their labors worth a million times more than they could ever have imagined. They built more than they could see. They could not see the way in which this temple ultimately pointed to Jesus. They could not see how Jesus became a true and better temple where sinners like you and I can meet God. But God, through their obedience, was pointing to something new and amazing a new kingdom that would be ruled by King Jesus. Second, in God's kingdom, all other nations and kingdoms will fall to Jesus. Verse 22 says this, I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. It would be easy to interpret Haggai's words here as referring to just something spiritual when he talks about kingdoms falling. But that would be a mistake because I think Haggai is talking about literal kingdoms and nations. For some reason, it has become really easy for Christians in the West and specifically here um, in the United States to equate our political systems with the kingdom of God. It's become easy for Americans to join Christianity and our nation together. But what Haggai says is that in God's kingdom, God will overthrow the throne of all kingdoms and that God will destroy the strength of the kingdom of the nations. And what that means is that our nation, our political system, will one day ultimately give way to the kingdom of God. It's not that our nation will usher in the kingdom of God. It's that our man-made political system will give way to the kingdom of God. Our nation is temporary, and I'm certainly grateful for for the incredible freedoms that we possess, but those freedoms and our wealth and our strength will all give way to something greater. And the days that we are in as we're dealing with a pandemic like we've never seen before, at least in my lifetime, 
and makes us all the more aware that what we have is something temporary that will give some that will one day give way to something greater. The church in America and the church worldwide must take seriously the legacy of Haggai. We must proclaim and enact the anticipated but also already realized kingdom of Jesus. We must be obedient to the one who will shake the heavens and the earth. We must not be obedient to the values of man-made systems but obedient to the one who will shake the heavens and the earth. And God's promise here should give us the courage to do so. Third, in God's kingdom, Jesus is king. Verse 23, on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Notice how many times in that passage that Haggai emphasizes what God is doing, what God is declaring. Three different times, the Lord declares something here. It's an assurance to these people, like we've already talked about, that God will restore the throne of kingdom, that God is going to do something, and that a king born from Zerubbabel will sit on David's throne forever. And on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus is the king that Haggai points to, whether Haggai realized it or not. And there are certainly great cosmic implications to the fact that Jesus is king. I mean, just look at this fantastic passage from the book of Revelation that echoes much of what Haggai was referring to. Revelation nineteen eleven through 16, just listen to this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a hugely cosmic implication of the fact that Jesus is king, everyone, everywhere will bow down to Jesus. But there are also some implications that hit a little closer to home. Earlier, I referred to the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus announces his kingship. And right after doing so in Mark 1.15, we see this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Right, to believe that Jesus is king is to believe that he is your king. And that should grab our attention. Because while our society may be certainly fascinated by royalty, we've never really lived under the rule of a king 
The idea of one person having total rule over everything in society is difficult to swallow. But what we must see is that Jesus claims immediate authority over our life when we see him as king. It may be difficult to put yourself into the scene that I just read from the book of Mark, being there with those first disciples, gripping their fishy-smelling nets as they go about their daily routine, knowing that fishing is their livelihood and has probably been so for generations in their family. And Jesus, as a stranger, walks into their workplace and tells them they need to leave their family business and follow him. And if you grasp how audacious that is, then maybe we can begin to understand the disruptive nature of Jesus' kingdom. I am a person that does not like to be interrupted. I don't know if you feel the same way, but it bothers me greatly when someone just interrupts a conversation that I'm in or interrupts work that I'm doing. I have somebody that I work with who will do this, that no matter who I'm talking to, no matter what I'm working on, no matter what's going on, they have no qualms about just walking into the middle of that situation and interrupting me to get the answer they need or the direction they need or or whatever it might be. And it's incredibly irritating in the moment. It's audacious. It's disruptive which is exactly what Jesus is doing when he says, follow me. Follow me is a pretty big statement. It's an interrupting statement. It's an audacious statement. Yet Jesus doesn't hesitate to make it. Because when the one calling you reveals himself to not just be any king, but the king, then it means that Jesus should be and is intended to be our king. And I am left with little choice but to obey. And if I do, his once disruptive command now becomes my source of joy. I follow this king not only because I must, but also because following him gives me true meaning and true joy. This king's good news that you do not need to earn your way to God is so far-reaching that it is certain to disrupt your life. The good news that out of his grace, Jesus has made a way for you to come to God frees you from the tyranny of having to build your own life resume to impress God and frees you to live in relationship with the king of the universe. So what are the practical implications for our lives as we come to a close of looking at this passage? Number one, work, be obedient, be faithful for you build more than you see. Your work is not in vain because it's connected to the kingdom. Your obedience may seem futile and unimportant, but it has cosmic implications. The obedience of God's people is part of how God works in the world, and this should motivate us to action, to obedience. Number two is to recognize that as a believer in this culture, in this society, this culture and society will not last. Our job instead is to proclaim in word and deed that there is a kingdom that will last, that God's kingdom will last. And our job is to invite everyone in to that kingdom. Our job is to invite everyone in to the family of God, to tell them about our king, the king, that they might be children of that great 
king. And number three, and finally, Jesus is king. And if he's truly king, that means he's our king. We have no other choice. Therefore, he reigns not just cosmically, but personally and daily and practically. And so for those of us who are listening who may not know Jesus as king, the invitation is for you to get in on this kingdom. The invitation is for you to understand that King Jesus wants you to be his child. The implication is that Jesus has done something for you to invite you into his kingdom, to invite you in to be a child of the king, to invite you in to to be his own, to have a relationship with him, to be valued by him, to, to know God as our father, as a good father, and for Jesus to be our king who sets the course of our life. The invitation for you is to know Jesus as king. And for those of you who do know Jesus as king, the invitation is to continue in obedience as a result of God's overwhelming grace and blessing because you build more than you see when we do those things. Redemption Church, Jesus is king. And if he's truly king, that means he's our king.